Hello, and welcome to episode seven of Making Sense, a Euro Dollar University production. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and I am coming to you over the podcasting channels of iTunes, Spotify, and Google Casts. Also, for those of you joining the YouTube simulcast, you'll be able to see some of the graphs referenced in the show, as well as pose questions in the comment section below. And questions is going to be the theme of our next show, our eighth episode. So if you have enjoyed this show, post some questions in the comments below, or if you have any other general questions, keep posting them. You could post them on Twitter, at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP, but Jeff doesn't respond to his Twitter questions too often there. No doubt he's being commissioned by perhaps monetary authorities on how to best manage this monetary depression we're in, whereas I have restraining orders placed against me by those very same entities, so I have lots of time. So you can ask me questions at Emil Kalinowski on Twitter. But next episode will be a mailbag show. This episode, Jeff, of course, Jeff Snyder, the head of global research at Alhambra Investments, uh, the baron of the uh, balance sheet, the officer of the offshore, earl of the euro dollar, so many titles you've got, Jeff. And now we're going to add historian to it. The big theme of your articles this week was Weimar, Germany. Uh, not that we're going to have a stylized Weimar inflation, but, you know, that's the boogeyman that we all point to. Uh, the fiscal side is spending. The monetary side is printing. Inflation, it's coming. Why do you have to be a stick in the mud and stand against everyone and say, no, I don't think so. Well, good morning, Emil. And I don't think it's me that's being a stick in the mud. And, and you're right. The theme isn't necessarily Weimar Germany. It's anti-Weimar Germany, right? It, it's, it's the fact that, uh, again, it, it's, not, it's not me saying we're not going to have inflation. It's history. When you look back at history, especially during these kinds of periods, these kinds of depressionary circumstances, what we find is that, yeah, you know, Governments want inflation, which makes sense. I mean, especially from not just a monetary policy perspective, but from a government perspective, if you're, in the, if you're in the grips of deflation, you would want its opposite to get out of it. And so, you know, there's, there's a very good reason why central banks and governments, treasury departments, finance ministries, all the various organs of authority would try to appeal to inflation during these types of periods. That's not the issue. What, what governments want to do and what they're able to do are two very different things. And again, it's not me saying that. You, all you need to do is look back through history, through all of these examples, and they all tell you the same thing. Yes, the government wants to, to pursue these highly inflationary, highly aggressive policies that they're supposed to uh, increase and, and and really really push the system into into out, push the system out of deflation and into an inflationary recovery. Yet. Um, Time and time again, we see that their ability to carry those things out, to their ability to make that recovery, the transition from deflation to inflation, is always limited. And that's really the point here is that, yeah, governments will stretch the limits, they'll smash the limits, they'll go way beyond every, everything you might think they, they would normally do. But yet, you know, in the end, it's like there's a much bigger, larger force out there that we don't see that holds everything back regardless of even the best of intentions. Let's start with Weimar Ben didn't happen. 
So now, why J? And that's, a, that's an article that you wrote. And you talk about how some, that thing, that something is standing in the way. And so you referenced uh, the book written in 1963 by Friedman and Schwartz. Uh, you talk about Ben Bernanke's quote in 2005 about the 1960s measures of money. Can you talk just a little bit about uh, this article? Well, first of all, we, we only need to go back about 10 years for the same type of, you know, fears and, and, you know, questions about what is really going on. Is the Fed's doing all of this crazy money printing. The government just borrowed, you know, a trillion, what was it, 800 billion for the, for the, I mean, astronomical sums at the time that everybody thought, geez, there's no way this can be anything but inflationary. Yeah, you know, the Great Recession's bad, 2008, 2009 is bad. But these guys are going too far. They're going to push it too far. And that by 2010, 2011, it's going to be like the 1970s or worse. We, you know, the, the term hyperinflation in Weimar Germany, they really came into vogue during, during you know, 2008, especially 2009. Even, even prominent economists like um, Anna Schwartz, who was Milton Friedman's co-author for Monetary History, you know, right away, it's July 2009, she opposed Ben Bernanke's reappointment for, for uh, Fed chairman because she said, look, this guy's gone too far. He only knows either zero or trillions. And so, you know, and it wasn't just, it wasn't just Anna Schwartz talking about Martin Feldstein. I don't know if people remember the group of 21, which all these prominent economists throughout the world after QE2 in 2010 said, hey, Ben Bernanke, you got to knock it off with his money printing. You're going to devalue the dollar. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to unleash the inflation monster. All of these things that happened in the early quote-unquote recovery period where these prominent critics, these prominent economists, these, these so-called experts kept saying, money printing, government spending, this is going to this is going to uh, unleash the inflation monster. And of course, it never happened. In fact, it was the opposite, especially after 2011. Exactly. That I was going to jump in and say, it wasn't until 2011, though, when we began to see that turn in commodity prices, inflation expectations, um, and we did see the treasury yield rise up into 2011, thereabouts. Isn't that right? And the dollar was falling. So there was a, a sense that uh, there would be inflation, right? I think it was the market giving the benefit of the doubt to these very fancy programs, these very large numbers. Of course, there were some things happening in Greece and Dubai, and then somebody was borrowing gold from the BIS and being redistributed out into Europe and, uh, you know, some things you don't have to worry about until about April 2011. But until that point, yeah, we were being believing inflation was coming. Well, there was there were some signals that suggested, I would say, more normalcy. But where it got into where, where I think everybody made their big mistake was in believing that the Fed was money printing and then overdoing it. There really weren't any signs that, the, that, the, that things were being overdone, that the Fed was going too far, that the U.S. government was pushing things too far. It was really just, you know, that's why we call it reflation. There were some reflationary signs. And Milan, you're right. You point out the dollar was falling, but it wasn't crashing. There was no signs it was going to crash. It was just it was revisiting the lows that it had hit in 2008. Uh, interest rates were rising. But, but along, as you point out, along the way, before we even got to 2011, there were several in, uh, very, very vibrant and, and very uh, significant deflationary signals. I mean, who uh, does any do people forget the flash crash in May of 2010? 
which was a huge, and it was related to what was going on in Germany, going on in Europe at the time too. So there were all of these monetary signals throughout, especially 2010. Oh, by the way, why does Ben Bernanke need to do a second round of QE if it's if it's such powerful money printing that it's going to risk hyperinflation? If you got to do it twice, it probably didn't work the first time. So it sure as hell isn't going to isn't going to go too far the second time. You know, so I mean. Yeah, it, it gets back to this idea of what does the Fed actually do? What what does the federal government really do? What is what does it what is it that really does matter to the monetary system? And what you find out, this is a point first our first pointing example was that in 2008-2009, it's not the Fed that's ma that matters, it's not the federal government, it's not the treasury department. It's this global banking system. The global banking system which you don't see with this hidden shadow money system mostly located offshore of the United States, that's what ultimately matters. And so you take your signals from that system and you realize there's no inflation. Inflation, it's, it's not just that, you know, inflation isn't, is, is, you know, a small possibility. It's, it's near impossible because we're in deflationary, depressionary conditions. And this is not new. This was known back in the day to the monetary authorities of the 60s and 70s. And Ben Bernanke even brought it up. In, in your article, you mentioned a quote of his from 2005, where he was saying that the Federal Reserve had taken on a, uh, a new project to measure money more accurately, but already in those early days... Yeah, maybe, you know, when, when was that? What was he talking about? What date? 1960. 1960, Ben Bernanke in 2005 was saying, hey, 45 years ago, we stopped being able to really accurately define and measure money. I mean, <laughs> and what people don't realize, I think, is that they never finished the project. They started it in 1960 and abandoned it in 1970s because it was too difficult. They said, you know, the banking system has created all of these exotic forms of monetary transaction. We just can't keep track of them, so we won't even bother. We'll just move the federal funds rate around, which is, this is Alan Greenspan's interest rate targeting. We'll move the federal funds rate around, and we'll let the banks figure out the monetary end of it. So the central bank, what Bernanke was saying in 2005, essentially, is the central bank had stopped being a central bank a long, long time ago. So when you say central bank, I think it's what we all instinctually understand a central bank should be doing, which is measuring and controlling the money supply. And that's what the traditional role of central banks has been for hundreds of years until after the Second World War, and you were saying that the project that they were working on was that measuring, that mapping, that uh, identifying the money supply. And they gave, when you said they gave up on it, was it the measuring and mapping? And therefore, as you said, in the 80s, they began to say, forget it. We can't actually figure out how much money supply there is. So we're going to measure, we're going to imply that the money supply is reacting to this uh, interest rate move. But the Bank of England had already decided to do that at the beginning of the 70s. So the U.S. was about 10 years behind. Which is usually true. The Federal Reserve is usually a laggard, not a leader. But you're right. I mean, this goes to the very heart of the message we're trying to say, trying to send here. And what, what the system is saying is that, look, money printing. That's what everybody's afraid of right now. The Fed is money printing. That's what everybody was afraid of in 2009. The Fed is doing too much money printing. And what we're saying here is, if you actually pin these people down, these, these Federal Reserve officials and central bankers all over the world, how can you print money when you can't define money? 
And so it, it's actually sort of a shell game. It's sort of a, it's, it's smoke and mirrors, right? As long as you don't think about it, as long as you believe the Fed prints money, then you'll act as if the Fed is printing money, which is exactly what they're intending. That's what monetary policy is. It's an expectations-based policy. If you think the Fed is going way too far and acting inflationary, then you'll react as if the Fed is going too far, which is exactly what they want to happen. And that's, that's really what's really the disconnect here, why there's a, people think there's going to be inflation, but there never is. Because expectations aren't enough in the, in the situation where the monetary system itself is actually short of money. And if the Fed doesn't know how to define it and doesn't know how to print it, what do you do? Expectations are not going to be enough. And so who is creating this money that the world has been running on? And who it is, is this offshore network of bank, new networks of interbank relations, as Robert Rusa said in 1984, which you mentioned in your article. And you say that, yes, we are creating bank reserves, but they are inert. And the only way they're going to come to life, they're like Frankenstein, right? Monetary Frankensteins. Well, doctor. So we need a Dr. Frankenstein to give life to these inert body parts. So this is a grotesque uh, metaphor I'm, I'm using. But you understand what I'm saying. And we need electricity and we need a Dr. Frankenstein. And that Dr. Frankenstein is played by the, by the private network. And there's a very important point in your article, and I'm looking for the quote here, is that you say that the only way they're going to be, uh, that this monetary stuff is going to come into, into life and become part of the uh, economy is if this network of banks uh, doesn't remain independent anymore. Uh, let me see what this, you, see, you bold and italicize independent in this article and you say that so long as the banking system remains detached, meaning they refuse to give life to the reserves that the central bank is creating, so long as they remain detached, money isn't gonna be, credit isn't gonna be flowing into the broader economy. So my question then to you is, is there a way to force them to do it? To, you know, obviously the way they would do it is by uh, believing that the economy that is full of return and demand is returning. But is there a way for central banks and the fiscal authorities to compel commercial banks to start lending freely into the economy yeah and i think that's that's really where we are now it's the idea that you can that you know banks are under the thumb of the government if push comes to shove the government will command them to do x y or z and the banking system will immediately respond and it's just not true the banking system responds to its own internal dynamics as individual institutions as well as in a systemic capacity it doesn't matter that the fed is giving them every possible incentive and signal to go out there and expand the money supply, whatever that means, whatever that effectively means in the offshore spaces and everywhere else, it doesn't matter that the Fed is telling them we want you to do that. If they can't do that, they literally can't do that because of their own balance sheet considerations, then it doesn't matter. That's all that does matter. So if the, if the government is going to become inflationary, it will have to erase the system as it is exists now and come up with an entirely new one. 
which of course is not is not going to happen. What is there a medium? Is there a is there a compromise whereby we keep the system, but the government becomes authoritative and treats these banks as public utilities and installs their people at the top and guarantees losses like or not guaranteed but it acts as a a true backstop so as to create a uh, some sort of confidence in the banks that if anything goes wrong the government will be there to pick up the pieces is that a possibility i'm thinking perhaps of uh of modern day china where beijing tells the big four banks I know lately they haven't been. I know lately they haven't been lending as much. But before they were, <laughs> at the penalty of death, can the government, I know not the American government, but, but can we, uh, is yeah. there some sort of power uh, whereby we compel banks to lend? Well, Emil, isn't that what the Fed is, is attempting? Not to that extreme, but that's the whole point of it, buying corporate bonds and buying junk bonds. What the Fed is trying to signal is to these bankings, the banking arrangements, these ad hoc networks and all of the individual institutions throughout the world, hey, we're gonna support this market. There won't be any losses. So go back to business as normal. Don't worry about this whole COVID-19 shutdown, this depression, this you know, 30 million people out of work. No, no, no big deal, we'll, we'll cover you. The problem with that is, is the Fed actually supporting those markets? It's, it's, it gets back to what Paul Krugman said in you know, the 1990s about the Japan, uh, the Japanese situation. You have to credibly promise to be irresponsible. The issue isn't the irresponsibility, which is what everybody focuses on right now. It's the credible part. The Fed is not supporting markets. It's pretending that it is. It's sending the message to you, me, and everybody in between that it's trying to support markets, and it wants everybody to believe that it can, but it's literally impossible for the Fed to do so. And the people who operate inside these banks and inside these markets know the difference. The Fed does not have the credibility on the inside that it's given on the outside. And that's really the main issue here because the monetary system itself, which are these banks, they know the Fed doesn't know how to define or, or, or doesn't know how to measure, define, or accurately uh, in, uh, intervene in the monetary system. Therefore, what credibility does the Fed have? And that's why you see bond yields so low. That's why you see curves crash. The bond market is saying, the monetary system itself is saying, hey, we're on to you, Fed. You're not printing money. We know you're not printing money. We know you can't print money. No, by the way, you trying to take this to the next level by saying you're supporting markets, we're laughing at you. We don't believe that either. Joined by Jeff Snyder, Chief Investment Officer of uh, Alhambra Investments. You can find him at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP on Twitter. Jeff, your next article, Weimar 30s, didn't happen because it's what you don't see. So you're not making all this up. This isn't a theory of yours. You're looking back at history, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, and you're referencing a story that's remarkably similar. This is definitely an example of one of those moments where the phrase history doesn't repeat, but it sure does echo. Can you talk about what happened in the 30s and how remarkably uh, similar it sounds to present day? Yeah, well, you know, we all think that quantitative easing, for example, is something brand new. Well, first of all, the Japanese did it, you know, about 10 years before the U.S. did it. 
but bond buying is a as a means of of federal uh, central bank, especially the Federal Reserve, trying to in, intervene in liquidity markets. That was done in the 1930s as well. You know, we talked about last week with the Bank of the United States and 19 the end of ni- December 1930 and how we got there. Well, in response to the failure of the Bank of the, ni- of the United States in, in December 1930, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York bought about 45 million dollars in Treasury bonds from two New York banks who were desperate for liquidity. Now, that wasn't quite quantitative easing, but it was similar in its intent and it's similar in its effects, which were not very good. Uh, and so, you know, between December 1930, early 1931, and the end of the great contraction phase of the Great Depression in 1933, Federal Reserve expanded its balance sheet. The level of bank reserves, which was called a reserve bank credit back then, uh, that level increased dramatically. I think it was about two and a half times from the low in 1931. So, I mean, the, there we go again, the Fed expanding its balance sheet, printing bank reserves, money printing, oh my God. And then at the end of 1930, or the beginning of 1933, the federal government, along with the Fed, got into the money printing business with something called the Thomas Amendment. And then, of course, devaluation, which they, they, they dramatically lowered the gold content of the dollar, which had the effect of, since they were paying more paper dollars per ounce of gold, that they had the effect of inviting an enormous quantity, an enormous sum of gold into the United States. So here you have much more bank reserves. You have gold inflow, massive gold inflows into the U.S. And everybody thought, you know, hey, here we go again. This, this has got to be inflationary. And on top of that, of course, we had the New Deal, right? I mean, we had the fact that the, the Roosevelt administration was doing all sorts of strange things, new things, borrowing in a way that had never been done in, in American history before. And so, you know, by the time we got to 1934, 1935, it was all the same things you hear today. It's all the same things that you heard in 2008, 2009, 2010, that this was going to definitely be inflationary. And Jeff is not just saying it's all the same things. Jeff has read the meeting minutes from the 1930s, and he's quoting them for your reading pleasure in this article, why Mar 30s didn't happen because it's what you don't see. And you can see that at Alhambra Investments. Uh, For those of you who have things to do on Friday and Saturday nights, Jeff has read the meeting minutes from the 1930s and has quoted them here for your time-saving pleasure. So, and, but it reads as it uh, reads recently, we're worried about reserves. There's so much of them. It's going to create inflation. You know what we should do? We should start raising interest rates. Is this 2018? No. It was the 1930s. It was the same story. And guess what? A re-recession in 1937, just like we had one right yeah, now. Yeah, and it's, it's also interesting, Emil, that it wasn't just about should we raise rates. It's what should we do about this massive inflationary problem we're not handling? They actually talked about something that was very similar to quantitative tightening. They had a QT debate in, this, in 1935 and 1936. They had all of this money. At least they thought they had all this monetary inflow in the in the. from 1931 forward, they weren't sure how to deal with it because they thought this is definitely going to be inflationary. We got to do something. What they ended up doing, instead of selling bonds, they ended up uh, raising the reserve requirement for the banking system. The reason they did that was they realized the situation was pretty fragile and precarious. Therefore, they didn't want to send the signal that they were tightening the liquidity supply, thereby triggering another banking panic. That was what they were really afraid of. That's why you saw, when you look on the chart for bank reserves, that this period here is almost exactly constant 
because the Fed was so afraid that if they reduced the level of bank reserves, that would do that would be the, the, the worst possible signal. Well, what it turned out to be was it didn't matter what they did because this, this situation was fragile. Even though gold was exploding higher, the monetary base was going through the roof. Everything should have been inflationary except for what you didn't see, which was, again, the banking system, the monetary, the money multiplier in that case. And as you said, Emil, what ended up happening instead of recovery and inflation or even the, the hint of inflation, you had this another massive depression in 1937, which if 1937 had happened outside of the 30s, it would have been one of the worst depressions in history, in our history, certainly. So we had this massive depression because officials got it wrong. They thought that they had, a, they had all the ingredients for a monetary inflation, monetary inflation, which would have been predicated on a successful recovery, when that was never actually the case. It was never actually happened. We had never left the, grip of, the grips of deflation. The best that we had was a reflation, and underlying all of it was this monetary fragility that the first sign of trouble retrenched again in, in the worst possible way. It's, it's like you said, it's what you don't see. Now, I myself am a bath man. I turn on the, I get in the tub, I turn on the faucet, and I see the water pouring in. That's the Federal Reserve creating reserves. What you don't see below the monetary water line is the giant sink drain, which are the commercial banks that are just destroying credit. And that's why the monetary water line never rises. But maybe yeah, it's, maybe Emil, it's it's almost the inverse here, right? Here we have in the 1930s, we have it in the 2010s, and now the 2020s. The same thing. The more the Fed does, that's not money printing. That's an indication of what's being destroyed in the parts that you don't see. So the more the Fed does, the more you should be concerned. Not not inflationary concern, but the opposite. That hey. What's going on that you don't see must be severe because look, it's forcing these, these guys who are always laggards to do something and to do something extreme. These people who don't know their jobs, who don't know the monetary system. By the way, that's, that's really the common thread throughout the, the Federal Reserve's entire history. I know we've, we've all been brought up on the quote unquote great moderation in the 80s and 90s, but for outside of that period, which you know it's arguable with the, the Fed's effect on that period anyway, but outside of the 80s and 90s, the Fed's track record is really, 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 really bad. I mean, not just the 1930s, you also have the 1970s, where the Fed didn't want inflation, did everything it could to try to control inflation, worked with the government in all sorts of, of ridiculous ways that expanded federal power that were more at home in communist China and Soviet Russia, you know, Nixon's wage and price board, for example. Yet, Inflation happened anyway, as if the Fed was a bystand, a powerless bystander to the monetary system that actually does matter. It's that's the that's the key. If you believe that the central banks know what they're doing, then you will come up with convoluted answers and to explain what's happening. But it's very simple. If you just assume that they don't know what they're doing and they are laggards, everything seems to become much simpler. Jeff, there's a line in that article that I want to ask you about. You said, quote, an inflationary scenario was therefore impossible at any level of official money printing and gold flows. But surely that can't be right. There's got to be a point where inflation takes place when it comes to money printing or 
Does that only apply in countries where central banks are the center of their monetary universe uh, and not in a reserve currency uh, countries such as the United Kingdom or the, uh, America where commercial banks create much more money than the printer? Situations like hyperinflation, it's not necessarily what the central bank does. It's how those central bank actions are interpreted. A hyperinflationary scenario, even if you get into not just Weimar Germany, but also Zimbabwe or you know Argentina, some of the more recent examples, what they show is it's not what the central bank does, it's how what the central bank actions are being interpreted. Hmm. And so there's even a level of, you know, I want to say uh, there's a level of, there's another layer of considerations and factors beyond just what the government wants to do. If the situation is such that, you know, the central bank credibly promises to be irresponsible or is just actually irresponsible and it's interpreted that way and there are no limiting factors outside of that, then that's your pathway to inflation and hyperinflation. But we're in a situation, as we were in the 1930s, where the considerations were more immediate. Um, the, 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 everybody was reduced in a deflationary and, and a depressionary environment to thinking about the situation from their ground level. I mean, the, the, the poor family on the street in, in 1930s America who had didn't care what you know they were doing in, in each of these 12 Federal Reserve branches because it was more decentralized at the time. They didn't care what the Fed was doing. They only cared about what cash they had available in their pocket and whether they could get some tomorrow. You know, it, 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 there's a huge disconnect between this top-down approach and even how that's supposed to work, what actually happens on the ground sometimes. And we're in kind of the same situation now where, you know, what's going on with Jay Powell and monetary policies, quantitative eating, that's, that's, all, that's all up in the clouds. That's not something that's, that's really impacting people's lives here. I mean, yeah, they see the stock market goes up on one of the worst days for, you know, the labor market in history. But I mean, there's still there's a disconnect there. There's, there's a deflation on the ground, inflation in the clouds. So that's the best way I can describe it because what happens on the ground is what's happened on the ground. And there's not much the central bank or the government can do to change that right now. Well, the Chicago Fed doesn't think so. At least a few people that work at the Chicago Fed, and they have written a paper, a working paper, that you discuss in your last article that we're going to review today. Quote, uh, everyone knows the government wants a controlled Weimar. And the Chicago Fed has, I don't want to say the Chicago Fed, but a few of the researchers there have stumbled on the idea that what you can do is have the fiscal arm and the monetary arm working together. And quote, the fiscal authority introduces an emergency budget with no provisions on how it will be balanced. First of all, I'm surprised that it ever is balanced or it's ever explained. And what it is, I don't really believe them. And I don't think anyone else does. And then let me continue. While the monetary authority allows a temporary increase in inflation, because we're assuming the monetary authority controls inflation or has been in charge of it. Jeff, tell us a little bit about the Chicago Fed paper and how it's related to that Thomas Amendment that you mentioned earlier in the show. Again, it's this disconnect between what everybody wants to do and what they can do. Well, the Chicago Fed, the researchers at the Fed, obviously assume the Fed can create inflation because they're a part of the system and they've believed that since the beginning, even though all evidence shows otherwise. And so what they're saying is what everybody knows. The government borrows a ton. 
therefore it wants to pay it back in inflated currency because that's the easiest way to, to drive down the level of debt relative to growth gdp whatever measure you want to, whatever measuring stick you want to use everybody knows the government wants to print its way out of its mess so what the chicago fed is doing is nothing that you know they're saying what we all know to begin with but the issue is not that the government wants inflation or the fed wants inflation is whether or not they can actually get it where does where does that supposed to come from now the chicago fed says well We'll just, you know, print money if we have to, which is kind of what the Thomas Amendment had, had uh, authorized way back in the early 1930s. Uh, it was a, an amendment to the Agricultural Farm Bill in 1933, which intended to deal with deflation in the agricultural sector, the farm sector, which was being ravaged by low prices at that point. What the Thomas Amendment, into, Thomas Inflation Amendment or Thomas Monetary Amendment, what they proposed was that the federal government under FDR, they would give FDR, the president, the authority to direct the Federal Reserve to buy $3 billion in U.S. Treasury bonds, financed by an issue of $3 billion in greenbacks, which at the time was paper money, anathema to the gold standard. So here you have the Fed doing exactly what the Chicago Fed was, is, was proposing, is proposing today, doing it back in 1933. The idea that the Fed would just print money use that printed money to monetize the debt so as to create an inflationary environment that would form the pathway for the recovery to happen. Now, the, the, the federal government back in the 1930s never activated, never acted on the Thomas Amendment because they decided, why bother? We'll just go all the way. We'll devalue the dollar. We'll, we'll take the, 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 you know, first of all, we'll take the, the U.S. off the gold standard and we'll devalue the dollar. So they went even further than the Thomas Inflation Amendment and still there was no inflation and still there was no recovery. So again, going back to what the Chicago Fed is proposing, yeah, the Fed wants inflation, the federal government wants inflation, but unless the Fed is actually able, unless the federal government is actually able to create inflation, who cares what they want? And again, that's what the bond market is saying. That's what inflation expectations are being traded on. The bond market knows what the Fed is and isn't able to do. With the, and that's the monetary system. Banks in the bond market, that's the monetary system telling the Fed, hey, we know you're, you're, all, you're all smoke and mirrors. There's no, there's no substance behind your efforts. You're just trying to get us to do your work for you. So in the Thomas Amendment, there was uh, the value the, or the content of the gold introduced silver again as a monetary unit, which was in 1873, it was uh, no longer legal tender or no longer eligible for uh, exchange at the treasury. Uh, and so they were thinking of reintroducing that uh, big, huge amount of money that would have been dropped on the economy if they said, yes, silver is part of the uh, going monetary standard. But they didn't, uh, they didn't do that. It didn't work. I'm wondering if they had reintroduced this huge amount of silver, if there would have been some sort of inflation. Um, but more importantly, I suppose the point is, for our present day, the key to getting economic activity moving forward again is to convince the private banking system to take on risk, that there is demand in the future. And is there any way to, or the other way is to come up with a brand new system, but that's probably too much. Jeff, is there any... Any, any way of convincing the private banks of taking on more risk other than some sort of wholesale socioeconomic political reform? 
Yeah, it's always about credibility. And that's what you, you talk about. You talk to Federal Reserve people and central bankers around the world. It's the same thing. The issue is always credibility. And oh, to your point, if, if there's a way forward, you have to be able to credibly promise to the banking system a risk return environment that is favorable to the expansion of their activities. Well, where's the credible promise to do that? Because over the last dozen years, the banking system in particular has learned that these guys don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're doing. They're all a bunch of charlatans. So credibility is already an issue to begin with, which is why inflation expectations have been so low since 2014. We're talking six years where the banking, the bond market has said, screw it. You guys don't know what the hell you're talking about. We're done with you. So credibly able or being able to credibly create the conditions where the banking system says the risk return environment is favorable to expansion. I don't know how you do that other than maybe firing everybody and starting again on the central bank level and saying, Hey, look, you know, we're not going to do that stuff we used to do. We're, we we're, we promised to reform and actually become, become competent in our core mission, which is to turn the federal reserve back into an actual central bank short of doing something like that. I'm not sure how you convince the banking system that has seen already a dozen years of failure. And oh, by the way, now we've got this new issue to deal with, which is pretty bad. And yeah, maybe, maybe it'll be a short term thing, but there's all sorts of negative implications, second and third order effects that could come along with that. So credibly promising to, re, to, redo, to redo the risk return environment so that banks expand their activities. You tell me, how do we do that from here? Where does that come from? It's nothing short of radical. You said it perfectly at the end, Jeff. Wholesale reform, nothing short of radical, different personalities, not personalities, just belief systems, people that uh, will come into the Federal Reserve or the top layer of government with entirely new programs, entirely new ideas. Of course, the problem is they could be the wrong kind of programs and ideas, but we're looking for something radically different, not just louder, not more of the same, but louder. It has to be a completely different idea. Yeah, and that's, that's the lesson we should take from Japan. We haven't got to, we, we'll probably have to save Japan for another time, but Japan's lesson is exactly that. They do the same thing over and over again, but just louder and louder and louder every time. Don't forget, you know, our theme today of, of, you know, inflationary fears, government plus central bank money printing equals the worst runaway inflation conditions. That is Japan to a T. For the last two decades, the central bank and the government have gone crazy. And this Japan is still stuck in its deflationary trap. The economy is still in the toilet. It hasn't ever recovered from a, from a massive collapse that was 30 years ago. So, again, the point is not what you think the government and central bank can do, because if they're not able to, to, to carry out the, the, the programs or carry out the, the methods they want to do, then it doesn't matter what they want. What they want is immaterial. It doesn't matter. What does matter is oftentimes in Japan, the U.S., the U.S. in the 1930s, it's what you can't see. It's what you don't see uh, uh, present in anything but, you know, certain market prices and the, and the ability to, interpret how markets and banking and all of these other factors are taking account of what's actually happened. Not what everybody wants to happen. Business leaders, consumers, the world over, they're playing the role of Marty DeBerg. And meanwhile, we have Jay Powell and the monetary technocrats playing the role of Nigel Tufnell. And they're telling us that these amps go 
to 11. They go one louder and we're questioning them, well, is that any louder? And they go, yes, yes, it's, where can you go? Where can you go? Nowhere. So you use one more. But of course, like Marty DeBerg, we're wondering if this makes sense at all. So Jeff, I will be talking, I have the privilege of asking you all manner of questions. Next week, we'll have the audience asking you questions. We'll do a mailbag show. So everyone on the YouTube simulcast, post your questions in the comments section below, and we will uh, answer as many as we can. And Jeff, thank you very much. I will talk to you again next week on our next episode. Looking forward to it, Emil.